Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter number 2, and we're looking at the third church here tonight. And we would call this the compromising church. Watch out. And we'll talk about some things tonight. And uh, look at this church in Pergamos tonight. Revelation chapter number 2. And look with me down at verse number 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, turn from, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, do you notice, if you notice right there, do you notice the words that are used there? He's not going to fight against the church. He's going to fight against them, certain people in the church. Do you see that right there? Something to notice. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth save he that receiveth it. Father in heaven, I pray you bless the next few minutes that we have tonight. Thank you for this passage of Scripture and for the time that we have to look at it. And I pray that you would help us as we look here tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As I've mentioned before, the different churches that these letters are written to are actual churches in these cities. In Pergamos, this city is a well-known city. It was a capital in Asia Minor, and it was known for its political power, and it was also known for its pagan worship. It was a wealthy city, and this city had two things that stood out about it, and each city had different things. But one of the two things, first of all, they had a library there with 200,000 volumes of books there. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal to us today, 200,000 books. But we're talking not 2023. We're talking back in the day when everything was written by hand. So can you? that's a big library if you really think about that and how things were written. And... Um, so it's a, the, also, Pergamus is where parchment was invented. And so parchment was a type of writing material developed from animal skins and stronger than papyrus and things. And so that was also made there. So they were known, they had that library of 200,000 volume. But also, they had a bunch of pagan temples. And one thing you'll know about in that day and right at this time there were pagan temples all over the place. And one of, the, um, one of their pagan gods um, in Pergamos, I can't even pronounce his name. Um, I'm not going to even try, but he was the god of healing and medicine. Listen to this. 
His temple was filled with snakes. And if a person needed healing, they would go into the temple, lie on the floor, and spend the night there. If the snakes were to crawl over them, that was a sign that they were healed by this God. And if the snakes didn't crawl on them overnight, they were not healed. So if anybody's sick in here and you want to try that, we can take you to the local zoo and see how many snakes... Anybody like snakes in the room? Is there any snake fans in the room? Yeah, I knew the McKeehans would be going up back there, at least two of them, the two, the two boys there. And so I remember when the snake got loose, and Lori was a little scared there about that. And so um, I'm, uh, anyways, so many thoughts running through my head with that right there, but I'll stop with that. But these pagans, these pagan temples, there are at least three in Pergamos there. And what happened was, and as I mentioned, once a year, I've mentioned this before, but every Roman citizen would have to walk into one of these temples and they would place a pinch of incense on the altar and say that Caesar is God. And if you didn't do that, you would be killed. And there are many Christians that gave up their life. You'll see tonight, you'll notice that there's a name mentioned here, Antipas. And I'm going to tell you the tradition of what happened to him in a little bit tonight. And that's what happened to him. He literally didn't place the incense and say Caesar is God. And he died for his faith. And so when we look at these things, I want you to understand these cities are pagan cities doing not the Lord's work, and yet there are churches doing God's work in the midst of it. And that's how God designed it to be. God designed, you've got to understand something, the world's going to do what the world does. We are not going to stop the world from what they do. We can be a witness, and we can do what's right, and we can be a light in the midst of what the world does. But as we look here, we see this is just, a, and as we look here tonight, we're going to see some things about this church. This is a good church. This is a church where we hear some of the things that they do, and it's like, I would, I would want to be a part of a church like this. Then you hear other things like, this is not something that I want to be a part of. But I want you to understand something as we look here. They were in desperate need of God's word. You'll notice, you see, it's interesting how the letter begins. Look at verse 12 there. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, the sharp sword, the two-edged sword, is a picture of something, isn't it? When you think in the Bible of a sharp two-edged sword, what comes to your mind? The Bible, okay, good. A few of you got that, good. I'm like, whew, I hope the Bible is quick and powerful, sharper than the two-edged sword. Bible talks about in Revelation 19 how a two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, out of Christ's mouth. The word of God and a two-edged sword go hand in hand. So when it says here, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges, it's talking about he's bringing this church God's word. And this church was in need of God's word. And Jesus comes to them declaring what he has for them here. And as we study this, we'll see that this church was a good church. They were doctrinally doing good, but there was some compromise by some of those members within this church. 
And what Jesus does, he calls them back and says, hey, you need to get back to where you were and repent, or I'm going to come clean it up. And may I just remind you tonight that as we look at these letters to these churches, you can look at them different ways. I mentioned we can look at them practically. These were written to real churches in that day and age in the real world. We can look at them prophetically. And these picture, I believe, different church eras. Like last week I showed you how the church there in Smyrna, I believe, represented the church from 100 to 312 A.D. And we looked at the suffering they went through. And we mentioned how that verse talks about, if you look back at the text where we were last week, it talks about that they're going to be, um, you shall have tribulation ten days, in verse number ten there. And I mentioned the ten rulers of Rome that brought great persecution on the church and tied that in there. Now something very interesting happened. Last week we went through those ten Roman rulers, and in 313 A.D., the Romans got a new ruler. His name was Constantine. And Constantine, there was a difference with Constantine. Instead of all the persecution and destroying Christianity, he got a different idea. And in all reality, Constantine is where the Catholic Church began. And what happened with the Catholic Church was Constantine was in battle one day, and he says he saw a vision. And in that vision, he saw a cross, and the Lord told him, by this sign, you conquer. So what Constantine did was he tried to bring the heathen mystic religions of Rome and Christianity and put them together. It's never a good idea to mix the world and the church together. It doesn't go well. And what happened was, there was this, they, there was this time where this treaty was signed, and you had these church leaders and Rome get together. And, the, and what happened was, you heard what Constantine wanted and what was going to take place, and there were a lot of Christians that left that and wanted no part in it. And then there were several that stayed. In all reality, that is the roots of the Catholic Church, a universal church. That's where it comes from. And so, and it's interesting, one of the main, you talk about Rome, one of their mystic heathen religions, one of the biggest ones, they had a female figure that had a miraculous son. So just think for a minute. You could take a female figure like Mary, And she had a miraculous son. And you could tie the religions of Rome and Christianity together. That's why in Catholicism, why Mary is so important. It goes back to this time. And the problem was, in these years from 313 to 590, and around that time, the church and Rome compromised together. And that's one of the reasons why I believe, as we look at the different churches It's different eras of time, and that's why I would say this would be that time. The word Pergamos, the city there, it means married. That's literally what the word means. And really what we see is, and as we look at the church, and we look at the early church, and we look at the church during this time, we see these things come together. It's not always a good thing. And so as we look at this tonight, we're going to do like we did with the other one of the other churches. The first one there in Ephesus, we're going to look at the good, we're going to look at the bad, and then the reward. 
Number one tonight, we look at the good. What good do we see? Look there with me in verse number 13. Jesus says this to them there, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. So we see, and as we look here tonight, as we look at the good, may I just remind you of something? Jesus told this church, just like he's told the other churches, I know everything about you. May I just remind you tonight, Victory Baptist Church, may I just remind us tonight, God knows everything about us. He knows the good and the bad. And we can hide it and pretend like everything is good, great, and wonderful, but he knows the truth. And I wonder tonight what letter he would write to us. There's a lot I could say with that, but I'm not going to go deeper on that tonight. But what I want you to know is Jesus knew all about this church. He knows all about our church tonight. He knows all about all churches. He's involved in things. He knows what's going on. And what I want you to realize tonight is that he knows this church just as well as he knew these churches. Don't ever forget that. As we look at the good, the first thing that we see, letter A, as we dive in tonight, we see that Jesus knew where they lived. Now, Pergamos is a bad city. This is what it says about it. This is where Satan's seat is, where Satan dwelleth. And when we look at this here, this church operated in the middle of a sinful city. This is a wicked city. And may I just remind you, I know sometimes we look and we think, we know that Satan's ultimate end is hell, right? But he's not there yet. He's walking to and fro in this earth. That's what he's doing today. He is still around. And in this, at this time, Pergamos, this city, this was a city where Satan was dwelling. This was his spot. And I want you to understand something tonight as we look at this. Satan is, let's be honest tonight, he is the god of this world, isn't he? He is. And he goes around like he's in control of everything. He's not the big G. He's the little G. He's the little God. But he is the God of this world. The Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 4, tells in whom the God of this world, that's Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. So we see that Satan, he is the God of this world. And the Bible also tells us in Ephesians 2, verse number 2, that he is the prince of the power of the air, right? That's what the Bible tells us. And Satan is active tonight working in this world. I I think you can realize that tonight. And there are principalities and powers in high places. Do you realize that tonight? Think about how Daniel, in the book of Daniel, one of the angels said, the prince of Persia hindered him. That was not the literal prince of Persia. That was literally a demon keeping him. And there are principalities and powers. I, was, I spent a lot of time on Tuesdays now at the rescue mission. And the guy that is running the rescue mission now, he was a Hindu monk, Hindu guru, Hindu guru. 
And he's talking about the powers that be. And talking about how even, and it's crazy when you hear some of the stuff, but when you stop and think about the principalities and the wickedness that's in high places, I'm a firm believer that in Washington, D.C., there is a deep, dark demon there. I think Sacramento, I think lots of places. I'm sure of it. Because that's our world at work. And you got to understand, this battle here is not flesh and blood. It's principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness in spirit in high places. That's what we're facing today. And so Satan, we see that in this city of Pergamos, we see that this is where Satan was seated, where he dwells. And as we look here and we see these things, Jesus knew right where they were. He knew what city they were living in. He knew what was going on around them. And may I just remind you tonight, just something, a blessing to keep in your mind. He knows where we live today. He knows the wickedness that goes on. He sees it all. He knows it all. He's not asleep. He's awake. He knows what's going on. And you can rest assured that God's not mocked. And whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. God's aware of everything going on today. And so as we look here, we see that Jesus knew where they lived. But not only did Jesus know where they lived, let's go to our next point here. We see that this church, they held fast to Jesus' name. They held fast to it. And you look here, and um, look at what it says there in verse number 13. I know thy works and where thou dwellest. You see that word dwellest? There are two words translated dwell in the New Testament. One means to make a temporary dwelling. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It was a temporary dwelling, Jesus in flesh. The other time that it's used, it means to settle down, to stay, to take up a permanent residence. And this church was making an active stand in a wicked city. That's a good thing. That's how it should be. The church should stand for what's right in the midst of wickedness. I don't know if you realize that you look in our world and you look around America today, and you look at the, the woke ideas, you look at the transgender stuff right now, you look at all this stuff coming out all over the place, the church must stand for what's right. We must. When we got churches in uh, uh, United Methodist Church, they call themselves a church, I don't even want to call them a church, and they're having a drag night in Texas at their church. You're not holding fast and standing for what's right. You're caving to the world and caving to the pressure. And this church was in the midst of a bad, dark place. In the midst of this dark place, they were there and they were taking a stand. We see that they held fast to the name of Jesus. This church was not ashamed of Jesus' name. They would have been the ones to say, in Jesus' name, amen. That would have been them. They would stand for it. They held fast. And this is Jesus saying this about them. And you think about it, there's no other name in history that's been more divisive probably than the name of Jesus. And you say, well, why is that? Because people don't like the name of Jesus. They never have, they never will, because there's none other name whereby you must be saved than the name of Jesus. He's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. There's a lot of churches you can sit in today, you can go a whole service and never hear the name of Jesus even mentioned. And what a sad fact that is. We need Jesus. 
We need to talk about Jesus. I like that song, let's talk about Jesus. The King of Kings is He. That's what we need today. We need more talk about Jesus. Not less, we need more about. But this church, they were there. They were permanent. They were held fast to Jesus' name. They let it be known. They were in the business of lifting up the name of Jesus, and that's what we should be doing today. Not only did they hold fast to His name, but next, they denied not the faith. Look at what it says there. It says, um, I know thy works where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and that thou holdest fast my name. And look at this, and hast not denied my faith. They didn't deny the Lord's faith. This church was doctrinally true. They held to the fundamentals of the faith. And Jesus praised them for it. Do you realize there are some things that we cannot cave on and bend on? You know, if we're standing here tonight and we're talking about a preference that we have, like how long a guy's hair should be, there's a preference matter. That's not doctrine. You can wiggle that one around a little bit. You can do, we can talk about, and there's Romans 14 and 15. There are times that that will settle, but there are things that are non-negotiable. When it comes to the inspiration of Scripture, it's a non-negotiable to us. When it comes to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, there's no exception. It's the truth. You cannot bend on that. When it comes to Jesus Christ being our Savior, there's nothing you can do on that one. When it comes to His resurrection, there are doctrines we cannot bend on. And that's why it's so important that we take a stand for the precious truths. Far too many groups of churches and people don't know what they believe and why. And they're losing those things. And it is important that you know the basic doctrines of the faith. And that we stand for those. And when Jesus looks at this church in the midst of Pergamos here, he says, I know this church. I see where they're at. And I see the fact that they don't deny my name. They hold fast to my name. And they don't deny my faith. Letter D, we see the fact that Jesus knew their sacrifice as well. Their stand for the Lord was a costly sacrifice. Even though, you think about this, even at this time the church was undergoing severe persecution, they stood for what's right. Do you see how the Bible mentions, look there, even in those days where Antipas, my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwells. We see that Antipas is mentioned here. And even in that persecution, he still, this church still, did what was right. I wonder what we would do if someone was martyred among us for doing what's right. It's interesting to note, do you see how the Bible mentions this guy by the name of Antipas? He's called my faithful martyr. If we look at Revelation chapter number 1, go back to chapter 1 of Revelation, and look at verse number 5. It says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Do you see that faithful witness right there? The word witness and martyr are the same exact word. Antipas is given that same name that is given to Jesus there for being a faithful martyr. 
a faithful witness of Jesus Christ in the day that he lives. History tells us that Antipas refused to offer the pinch of incense and say that Caesar's God. And because of his refusal to worship Caesar, Antipas was placed in a brass bull. A fire was built under the bull, and Antipas was roasted to death. And that's how he died. The Lord calls him his faithful witness, his faithful martyr. And do you know, not many people today still know who Antipas is, but Jesus mentioned him right here because it meant something to the Lord that he would stand for what's right and die for his faith. And as we get closer to the Lord's return, I've told you it, and I'll tell you it over and over again, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you're going to hold to the right doctrine, and especially as our world keeps changing around us, persecution is going to come. The Bible says, And yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We see that this church, they held fast to the name of Jesus. They denied not the faith. They made us, they sacrificed this is a good church. And there's the good. But then number two tonight, we see the bad. Verse 14. It says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornications. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. We see the bad as we look here tonight at the bad. When God looks at his church, and when he looks at this church, he sees things that make him happy. And that's a good thing. I like that about this church and about the other churches we've looked at. But we also see there are some things that made him unhappy. And some things that this church needed to change. What's wrong with this church? As we look at this, we see first of all, we see letter A, we see there was compromise in the church. There was compromise in the church. As I mentioned, the name Pergamos means married. And as we look at this, you kind of see how the church, and we look at that time period, how the church and the state kind of married together, and there's more that I could say with all of that. But literally, you, what you cannot have in a church it doesn't work to have compromise and truth. It doesn't. And I think sometimes we get the idea, and sometimes people get the idea, well, and I think we don't understand what compromise is either. Compromise is a big word. And uh, I've had many a pe person over the past few years tell me that I'm a compromiser. And I'll just, I'll just set, you, I'll set you straight on something tonight in a nice way. Standing for what the Bible truly says and not what some man says is not compromise. It's biblical truth. And that's where I stand. I will not compromise with the doctrine of this book. But I will not follow what some man says that does not line up with this book. And if you want to call that compromise, you can call it whatever you want. But I'm not a compromiser. 
I'm a Jesus follower. And I would much rather let him lead me and guide me and let him make me what he wants me to be than make you happy. If I can make you happy and the Lord happy, I'll do both. But if I can just make him happy, I'm going to do what he tells me to do. Because someday you've got to understand something. I'm going to stand before God for what I preach and what I teach. I'm not answering to you. I'm answering to God for what I preach from this book. And so there came a day where as I'm studying this book and as I'm preaching this book, what I was preaching and what I had been taught good stuff, some of it didn't line up with what this book says. And if it lines up with this book, I'm going to proclaim it and preach it. If this book doesn't talk about it, someone else can worry about that. I'm not going to go down that road. I'm going to worry about talking about what the book does say because there's a lot here, and i got a lot to talk about here without adding my own bit to it. And so preaching the truth is not compromise. That's real strength and real truth and what churches need today. And I'll leave that there. This church has some compromise in it. We see, first of all, that they had the doctrine of Balaam in it. We look there in verse number 14. And tell, what's the doctrine of Balaam? I'll tell you here in a minute. It says, but I have a few, th- it says there that there are them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornications. And really, Balaam is one of the strangest characters in the Bible to me. He's one of those I cannot get a good grip on and figure out. And, you know, when we think of Balaam, I don't even think of Balaam very much. I like his donkey more than I like Balaam. In fact, his donkey had more on the ball than Balaam did. And so that donkey had, was on the ball. May I just remind you tonight that if God can use a donkey and use Balaam's donkey, he can use any of you and I in this room tonight too. But you've got to understand, he knew, Balaam knew about God, about the character of God, and Balaam even talked with God some. But you think about this, he was motivated by greed, and really at the end of the day, he was guilty of, and when we think about this, he was, and he wanted to really lead people astray. Numbers chapter 22 through 25, you can read it. What happened was the king king of uh, Moab, Balak, wanted to curse the nation of Israel. So he called Balaam to do his dirty work. And he promised him wealth if he would do it. And I believe it was three or four times. I think four. Four, I think. Four times he tried to curse Israel and he couldn't. So instead he helped lead them to do wrong and mess them up from within than from cursing them. And when we look at this and we think about what is the doctrine of, and what happened was God's wrath did consume some of Israel because of it. But when you say, what is the doctrine of Balaam? Well, basically, it's wickedness and worldliness. Because what Balaam couldn't do, Balaam couldn't curse God's people, so he helped bring sin into them and mess them up that way. So what was happening in this church, there were members in this church that were bringing in the world stuff and polluting this good church, following the doctrines of Balaam. And Jesus is like, I don't like this. This is not what's supposed to take place, 
in my house. And we see that here. And I want you to understand something. We have that today in our world. What, does the, what are we trying to do in the modern church today? We're trying to take the world and bring the world in and use the world's methods to do God's stuff. And we hear it all the time. God doesn't care about how I live and what I do. Nothing matters, all this. And may I just remind you, yes, our righteousness doesn't add up to anything, but you are a child of God, and our life, we should be different. We are sanctified. We are set apart. We are holy. There's a lot to all of that, and there's a lot more I could say. But what I want you to understand something is, we look at this stuff, God's house and God's people should be different than the world today. And what was happening here was, there were those that were bringing in this doctrine, and bringing in this filth, bringing this worldliness and this garbage into this church. And Jesus is like, I don't want that into my church. And let me just remind you tonight, God doesn't want that in this church today. Don't bring the world's garbage into this place. Don't do it. It's not your job to bring the devil's garbage in here. Keep it out. Live right. Do what's right. So I'll, And I could go down a long rabbit hole here. And I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole tonight. But you realize sin affects everybody. Oh no, my sin just affects me. No, sin affects everybody. This whole church was affected by those, a few, that were following the doctrine of Balaam here. We don't need that. We got enough problems in our midst. We don't need it here. Let's do our best to do what's right and to live for God and do what he's called us to do. You see, the other problem I believe that happened was I believe that this church kind of knew what was going on and they tolerated it. And there's a fine line. You know, we look and it's like you see in the Bible, you see that thing about, you see church discipline and you see that there. And there's a fine line with all of that. And there are churches, there are Baptist churches that that's all they do. They have like church discipline every other week and they basically just have a jury trial for their church members. And I don't believe that that's what God intended to be. But I also know you look at the church in Corinth as a great example. The church in Corinth had a man basically sleeping with his stepmom. The church knew about it, and they did nothing about it. And Jesus wasn't happy. And they had to basically set him aside till he got right. But then he got right, and then the church didn't want to accept him back in 2 Corinthians. And there was a fine line with all of that as well. We love people. We know people are going to mess up and make mistakes. We need to be here for people and love people. We also can't tolerate the immorality and the garbage as well. There's a fine line between all of it. This church had a problem because we see there was the doctrine of Balaam, but also number two, we see they had the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now this is the second time the Nicolaitans are mentioned already in just three churches. They were mentioned earlier, and they were mentioned back in chapter 2 there in verse number 6. It says, 
But this thou hast, and thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So not only did this church have the de- they had the doctrine of them, as we see here. Now the, the word Nicolaitan, now this is the hard thing. You, I could look at all these commentaries and all these thoughts, and people don't know what exactly, what was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So one of the ways we try to figure out what their doctrine was is to look at what the name means. The name Nicolaitan, it literally means to conquer people. And maybe it has the idea of elevating yourself over other people and running over people to get higher up in leadership type. That's, that's what the name literally means. To conquer, to take the lead. And, you know, we think about... Um, and what was it? Which is it? Second John or Third John? And um, sorry, my mind just. Went, I was earlier today. I thought about this passage as I was thinking about the message here. And um, Diotrephes, that's the one I was thinking about. Go to um, Third John real quick. Third John. I think this is a great example of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans right here. So Third John, Third John, Third one. Verse number 9 says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, received us not. And this guy wanted the power and wanted to take over. And literally, I think that's what it's talking about. There were those in this church that followed the doctrine of Balaam. And there were those that followed this doctrine. And the problem was, they didn't stop it. Was this a good church? Yes. Did this church stand for the name of Jesus Christ? Yes. Did this church hold to doctrine? Most of the people did. But there were those that didn't. And it's not going to work very well have a church where you got some following the doctrine of Christ and some following the doctrine of Balaam and some following the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You can't have a three-headed monster there or two masters. You can't. It's not going to work very long. And Jesus tells them here as we look here the fact that there was compromise there. And what does Jesus tell them to do? He tells them they got to repent. So the next point there, letter B, he calls them to repent. The word repent means to change the mind. And literally, repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of direction. And as I mentioned here, look at the rest of that verse. It says, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's not going to fight against his church. Now, this is an interesting thing. Are those people that are following these other doctrines, are they even saved in this church? I have a t- I, it's a hard one to quite say. Jesus tells them to repent, but if they don't, he's going to fight against them and get them out of his church. That's what he says. That's what we see right here. And may I just remind you, 
you don't want to be found on the wrong side of things with the Lord. You want to be on his side. That's the way you want life to be. You want to be on his side. You don't want to be fighting against the Lord. It doesn't work out very good. It never ends well. And as we look here, we see he tells them there's some good, there's some bad. And then he talks about a reward. Now, as we look at these rewards here, um, Caroline mentioned last week, and uh, sometimes I like having my wife in here and then going home and talking to me about this stuff, and then sometimes I don't like it as much because then she reminds me, oh, there was something else I should have said and maybe something to add in there. But she asked me a question. Let's go back last week to verse number um, 11. So this is at, or um, let's go back up to verse number 10. It says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So the question was asked, so if they didn't stay faithful to the death, would they overcome? What, what does it mean to overcome? Now you need to remember, and we're going to look at the reward here in a minute for this church. Jesus is speaking directly to these churches, right? And one of the things we got to do a good job of when we look at the Bible, we must take Scripture and compare Scripture with Scripture. You cannot take one letter to one church in five verses and make a doctrine out of five verses when the entire Bible says something else from those five verses. Now you'll notice it says, to him that overcometh, at the end of verse 11, shall not be the hurt of the second death. What is the second death? The second death is being cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. How do we overcome? faith right that overcomes the world it's our faith in jesus that overcomes now the lord does talk to these churches and we're going to look here in a second at this church the reward we looked at verse number 10 there it talks about they'll receive a crown of life that is the martyr's crown and those that remain faithful to him antipas is a great example that we read about tonight he will get the martyr's crown, the crown of life, because he did, and he's going to cast that crown before the Lord someday. If I'm not martyred for my faith, I'm not going to get the martyr's crown. If I'm martyred for my faith and I am faithful, I will get a martyr's crown to cast at Jesus' feet. So when we look at the rewards and things, we need to make sure we look at it in retrospect to this church and also we think about like the fact if the fact is the way we overcome is through faith you have to take the rest of the scriptures with it but look at verse number 17 this is interesting look what it says he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith of the churches to him that overcometh will i give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth save he that received it. What in the world is hidden manna? And what in the world is this white stone? First of all, I don't know. Now I will tell you, 
There are many people that have lots of opinions. So I'm going to give you the best opinion I can about it, okay? So the rewards we see, the first one is we see the phrase hidden manna. Now, when we think of manna, we think about the children of Israel, right? And they wandered through the wilderness, and God fed them by sending manna down from heaven. Some of this manna was gathered in a golden pot and placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there are those out there that say that ancient Jewish tradition says that when Israel was taken captive, Jeremiah took that pot of manna. And when the Messiah returns, he's going to give his people that hidden manna someday. That's when Jesus comes. Is that got anything to do with it? I don't have a clue. But what manna pictures is that God feeds and takes care of his children. In this city, it's a pagan, heathen city that killed Christians, as we've seen. They were, and you think about all the mystic religions, all these different things. Well, I want you to, what I believe, and you can have whatever thought you want here, but what I believe is the Lord's saying, I will take care of you. That's all he's saying. If you want to think the hidden man is something deeper than that, he's just saying, I'll take care of you. Now this white stone, let her be, this white stone, it's interesting. Because this white stone, he promises it. But white stones don't mean much to us today. There were a couple meanings to white stones back in Bible days. Let me just give those to you, and you can come to your own conclusion, okay? White stones and black stones were used to indicate judgment in ancient courts of law. Black stones meant you were guilty. White stones meant you were innocent. Is there any meaning with that there? Who knows? White stones were used to signify citizenship. Could have been signifying their citizenship in heaven. Who knows? White stones were also a sign of victory. There you go. Um... White stones were symbols of friendship. White stones were used to gain access. You say, well, which one is this? I don't have a clue. They were given a white stone. That was their reward. But what it says here, and you look at the end there, it says that their white stone would contain a name which no man knoweth, saving he that received it. And this is talking about what I see is an intimate personal relationship with the Lord, with what they would go through that no one else would get to have. You suffer and you go through the things that they were going through, they were going to get to see. And you realize the more trials we go through, the more you get to really know God. Isn't that true? As that's true, isn't it? And could it be that? Could it be not? I don't know. They had hidden manna and white stones. Now, I could be dogmatic and say it's for sure something, but I can't because I don't really know. But what I do know is this church, they held fast to the name of Jesus. Their doctrine was good. But they let some things go on in their church, and they let doctrine in that had no place and no business in their church. And the Lord wanted it gone. 
and the Lord was going to take care of it if they didn't take care of it. Because what that reminds me is, this is his church, isn't it? It's not my church, and it's not your church. It's his church. That's why we need to be very careful what we do in this place, because it's not yours and mine. It's his, and we get to be a part of his church, which means we need to leave it alone and let it be his way and follow him. Father,